0: welcome to episode 153 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers and we love looking at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Uh, you've got a bit of a shout out to do here uh, for Shane to uh, some of our uh, one of our supporters, I think, at least. So uh, I'll let you uh, do that and then we'll carry on with a uh, bit of a QA. and a
1: yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, we have a new Patreon. So uh, thank you very much, Sean. We definitely appreciate the support. Um, we've said it many times, but uh, just a kind of, a, I guess, a reminder that uh, we do have a Patreon and, and anything that we receive there really just goes back into the podcast to cover some of our uh, some of our expenses that we have uh, for the hosting and all that. So we definitely appreciate it. It allows us to really just focus on delivering the podcast and, uh, you know, something we enjoy that we'll keep doing and uh, yeah, just a big thanks to Sean and, and really all of our, uh, our Patreons um, definitely appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much everybody. It does uh, give us the opportunity to, to continue doing this. We do it as a, as a labor of love. Um, but there are, uh, you know, some some expenses in making sure that it has decent quality, um, and that the the podcasts are available to to everybody for free. And certainly, we're getting uh, lots of listeners. And as such, we've had a recent email from Corey. Actually. A few of these are are getting on to I think maybe a few weeks old and uh we've just been compiling them and uh I'm gonna read the first email from Corey which is some questions for Shane. So uh I'm gonna kind of put those to him. If you're ready, Shane, I'm gonna go ahead and read the, the email from Corey.
1: All right. Sounds good.
0: All right. So Corey says thanks so much for producing such a wonderful podcast. Well thanks you for thank you for listening. <laughs> I know it is a, is a large time commitment and it's very much appreciated. I'm listening to the episodes chronologically. Oh,
1: <laughs> so, some of the early ones are, <laughs> our quality wasn't as good.
0: It wasn't like as good. Form. Right. And, and when we were beginning, we, we decided that we would just start recording and putting podcasts out instead of um, testing and doing all the stuff that we do in our day-to-day lives uh, at work. So that, thanks for bearing with us. Um, and he just finished the double star episode, which he enjoyed, which is great. So he's got a question for you, Shane. He says he's considering purchasing a TAC, Takahashi FC76DCU, which is telescope you own, and says he's pretty new to astronomy and currently using an 8-inch daub that has been great so far. He says, unfortunately, I live in a very light polluted area in the suburbs just outside a major city. And so far, all my observations have been done at my nearest dark sky site, which is uh, a local astronomy park, which is, that sounds super cool. It's uh, about an hour south of him. So uh, he would like to get a smaller refractor that would complement his eight inch daub uh, for observing at home amidst the light pollution, as well as uh, serving as a travel scope. Uh, He says, I'm pretty new to this, but tend to dive headfirst into my hobbies quickly and, uh, and going down the rabbit hole. So he's uh, very interested in lunar, planetary, uh, open and globular star clusters and double star observing, and uh, believes the TAC would excel at. Um, so what uh, what do you think, Shane? Should uh, should Corey go with the TAC?
1: Um, yeah, well, I, I love it, right? The TAC is a, a phenomenal telescope. Um, I think that a, a three-inch refractor is, is, you know, probably one of the better uh, grab and goes or, or like smaller portable telescopes that you can get. It's, it's a great blend of aperture and portability. Um, the nice thing with the TAC is it like the 76, uh, DCU is just how light it is. It's, uh, it probably is comparable to some, you know, 65 millimeter telescopes or, or, you know, uh, ones of smaller aperture probably weigh about the same. Uh, TAC just uses some ultra lightweight stuff that that really, um, you know, makes it an easy telescope to mount. Optics are first rate. Um, the focuser is is definitely the weak point. You know, it's a single speed focuser. So you'd have to do some, some aftermarket stuff if you want dual speed. And then um, you, you have to get used to using some extensions because the draw tube on the focuser is only like an inch and a half or two inches, something like that. It's not a lot. So you know, in order to have enough in focus room, sometimes I don't have enough like back focus or, or draw like tube like the tube draw tube coming out of the telescope. Sometimes I don't have enough of that space, so I have to use an extension uh, just to create a little more space so I can achieve focus. But um, you know, it's an incredible telescope. Uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. Um, the probably the biggest uh, you know mark against it is simply the price. It's it's an expensive telescope. And there's a lot of options, uh, at that price range. Um, and I think he, I, I believe Corey actually started to look at, uh, some of the stellar view options too. Um, I think, I think he was looking at a four inch, um, or maybe it was a, a three inch from stellar view. So, you know, stellar view also makes, uh, outstanding telescopes. Um, if you buy say, you know, any one of the stellar views, I think they typically come with rings. It comes with the two speed focuser, um, mm-hmm. sometimes the dovetail, you know, and with TAC, you're just getting the telescope. You still have to buy like the, uh, the, the clamshell or rings and whatever else you want to do to it. You're, you're adding on to that price. Um, so certainly, um, like I say, there's a lot of options, uh, for people in that three inch range. Um, I love my TAC, but, uh, there's a lot of other telescopes that would, uh, you know, show wonderful images and provide, uh like a lifetime of observing like you know um it, this uh, William Optic they make a lot of you know great uh, 3 inch telescopes that are uh, pretty affordable um probably you know in this case I would recommend a, an apochromat you know something yeah, uh, something perfect. in the ED or whatever um yeah it'll just you know provide some sharper images and and better on the planets with less color
0: yeah um you know, and really, I think, like, after using these tax, and, and I've had mine, uh, I've looked through uh, your DCO. I've looked through Mike's uh, FS-78. Um, you know, I, I got to say that, you know, the, the bang for buck is is pretty high on them. Um, considering other other telescopes that have been around in the past and, and currently available, I kind of think the Takahashi is... Is getting up there in the price, but uh, what you actually get in the quality uh, for that price is uh, is exceptionally high. They they do work well, but uh, you know to complement an eight inch uh, reflector that you already own, I think that uh, getting a three inch is uh, is the perfect size to complement the the eight inch. That that's what I originally did. Um, I think that's what you did as well, Shane. I think you went from your eight inch to. Uh, to a William Optics 80 millimeter, which which is exactly what I had done as well. So yep. um but but with the with the TAC, um what you're probably getting, and, and I, I haven't looked through as many of the recent William Optics or other scopes, but um what what you may notice with the TAC over other telescopes is that um they just don't really have any of the secondary color at all, uh sort of bar none. And uh that that's Pretty rare, even in a park I mean, Usually, you will still see some color. I can see just like just like the small smidge of green under certain certain conditions. Um, as my secondary color, um, but uh, boy, it's uh, it's pretty tough to see, and uh, I, I don't. I can notice just barely in in the other uh, three inches, but it's it's pretty tough to see. So. Uh, you really don't get any any secondary color um, much at all, so I think, think that'd be good. That would be awesome. I think uh, to go with any any three inch refractor that's uh, that's uh, apochromat rated. Uh, he says sort of going on. Um, my other primary hobby is photography. Uh, and does some uh, vintage glass and, and camera photography, and uh, a bit of an optic junkie. Starting off with the more affordable AT80 or similar. Uh, but he has a feeling the CA would bother him. Yeah. And and so if CA bothers you, that CA is secondary color or chromatic operation. Um, and the other telescopes will have it. Uh, it. It bothers some people more than others. I'm actually really not that bothered by it myself. And I'll even take out my 80 millimeter F5 ST80, um, which has uh, probably about as much secondary colors as you can pack into one little telescope. And I have great views of the moon <laughs> that's with it um it doesn't really bother me much at all but it 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 won't do power really is is uh, what it comes down to but something like an AT80 is is going to give you um, the the ability to to go to higher power um, Shane what I don't know what your thoughts are on a on a different telescope
1: yeah, th- like I said, there's there's a ton of options in that 80 millimeter range, and um, you know, lots of them will be great. Uh, I would stick with some kind of an apocromat, and uh, you know, I, I I can't imagine anybody who uh, wouldn't fall in love with the views.
0: He's also talking about getting similar eyepieces to what to what you have. Uh, 24 panoptic would be a good uh, wide field choice. Uh, he mentions, and then he talks about uh, the Bader 8 to 24, Nagler 3 to 6 zoom. I'm wondering if uh, you might have any other recommendations for eyepieces.
1: Yeah, the the 24 millimeter panoptic um, is probably my longest serving eyepiece that I have in my collection. Um, I bought that when I had my eight inch daub and I've used that eyepiece extensively with all of my telescopes. Um, It is just, in my opinion, uh, there's nothing better for portability and wide field. Now it is inch and a quarter. So there's certainly wider fields available if you get into the two inch eyepieces. But if you really want uh, like a lightweight wide field that um, is uh, you know a part that can be part of a like a grab and go package, hard to beat the twenty four pan optic. It, it works well in in just about any uh, focal length of telescope. Um, and, and this is where you know you start to, I guess, maybe notice the difference between some of the more expensive wide fields and maybe some of the less expensive wide fields is that, at, at say f5, the 24 millimeter panoptic is still going to be a great eyepiece. Um, uh, a less expensive wide field, you're going to notice some edge distortions, um, probably at f5, because it just that that fast light cone is is really hard on an eyepiece. Um, I do like zooms. Um, I have a couple of them. I have a Nikon MC2 zoom, which is uh, super small and portable. And I I also have the Leica aspheric zoom and the convenience of a zoom is phenomenal, you know, just to be able to zip through the focal uh, lengths and really dial it in for whatever the seeing conditions permit. Um, the downside with some of the zooms is that the eye relief isn't that great, which is where the Leica uh, actually really excels. Uh, but if eye relief is a concern, make sure you look at what, you know, what the zooms offer, because I think a lot of them are, are kind of tight. Um, And then for fixed focal length, I think it really depends on what you want to do. Um, You know, if you're going to be double stars, planets, lunar, um, I'm a big fan of orthoscopics. Uh, Probably the best ones available right now would be the Takahashi orthos. Um, But there's lots of other ones. Like I think Bader makes some orthos still that are decent or, or quite good. Um, and then there's used ones like the, uh, the 0.965 Takahashi MC orthos, I still think are some of the, the best bang for your buck, uh, purchases a person can make. Um, like you can find these for about a hundred dollars each and they are sharp. Like they are phenomenal eyepieces and uh, super lightweight. Um, but if wide field is more your, your thing, or if you need uh, a good eye relief, um, I think you and I are pretty big fans of the, the Nikon Navs, although I haven't really looked through them, uh, so I can't speak to the whole range. Uh, you can still buy the Pentax XWs, which you have a lot of, and, and yeah. they're really good. Um, Teleview makes a whole bunch of really good eyepieces um, as well, like the Delights, uh, the Delos, the Naglers. Um, and then, you know, I think explore scientific has a, a number of different ranges out there. So, you know, there's a pile of eyepieces and, and, you know, I'm a little hesitant to really give eyepiece recommendations. I like to talk about the eyepieces I use and why I like them, but I think eyepieces are extremely subjective to the observer. You know, it depends what views you like. It depends how sensitive your eye is to certain aberrations. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it and, and when it comes to eyepieces, you know, my, probably the, maybe the most valuable thing I could say would be try to look through other people's gear and just see what you like. Um, so if you're observing with, with friends and you're considering, you know, an eyepiece purchasing an eyepiece that they have, see if they'll let you borrow it for 15 minutes uh, or, or so to put in your telescope and just see how it works. And, um, you know, the best, that's the, the, the most economical way to try gear. Uh, the other thing to do is just buy used stuff. Um, if you buy it from cloudy nights or astromart or, um, astro com, uh, you're buying from other astronomers who usually, you know, take good care of their stuff. And the nice thing with used gear is you don't have to worry about the depreciation. It's already happened.
0: Finally, uh, he's, Corey says that he's been, uh, tra- traversing our archives and uh, was wondering if you could give a bit of, uh, a long-term review of your uh, of your attack and and let us know if if you're still loving it, Shane. And uh, he'd he'd appreciate uh, your expertise and your reply.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, like I say, I'm still I'm still loving that telescope. That one, you know that that will be with me until the very end. Um, I will not sell that it's, it just excels at everything that I like to do. I believe it's like the ideal backyard telescope. And if you have the Q extender, it, it makes it even more versatile. Um, it's, it's a wonderful scope. I I just can't say enough good things about it.
0: Yeah. I came pretty close to buying the the DCU myself. I, I'd intended to buy it. And, uh, I could have say there's not that much difference between the four inch And, and the three inch, like I I've, I've had my scope out with your scope. I've had my scope out with Mike's scope. And honestly, I really think like it's, it's splitting hairs. Like I can see the difference, but it's not, uh, it's not a massive difference between these, these tack threes and fours it's there, (laughs) but, uh, I I don't think it, I don't think it's going to be something that, uh, you know, especially if you're just sort of looking for a telescope, um, and to complement a larger telescope, I, I think the three-inch is definitely the way to go.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting point about how close the views are. Um, you know, the things I notice more, or the differences, I guess, between the two telescopes that I've noticed are particular on uh, globular clusters, like brighter ones, like M13. It definitely, the, the larger aperture, like the four-inch, starts to resolve more individual stars. Um, yep. and the other aspect is just the image scale, you know, things look a little bigger in the four inch and, um, you know, as such, sometimes it's easier to pull out detail as a result, but, but they yep. are close, uh, a lot closer than I ever would have expected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, I think if you're, Corey, if you're going for, for a second scope, then, uh, I think that would be awesome. I think if you. If you look at at some of the other options out there, and you're okay with a little bit of secondary color, like some of us are, like I'm definitely okay with secondary color. Um, actually bought the TAC for for different reasons. I I wasn't as concerned about secondary color. In fact, they came out with a new Takahashi when I was buying mine, and by all accounts, the only improvement had been just uh, removing that little bit of green secondary color that you can see. And I went, no, not interested. Doesn't matter to me. I don't care if there's a little bit of just tiny bit of green cast, uh, under certain conditions. So that, that doesn't bother me at all. I bought it for the ability to have uh, high power. And that's, uh, that's one thing that you get with the tack is you're getting uh, pretty much no secondary color and you're getting optics that can take an awful lot of power and are exceptionally sharp, whether you're getting a, a, a three inch or a 60 millimeter, uh, the 60 millimeter as well, uh, or you're getting uh, getting a four or five inch tack you're, you're really able to push the uh, the power to uh to to another level, really. Like it always seems like you can run just that little bit of extra power on it.
1: Yeah, they take power exceptionally well.
0: Okay. So uh Phil had written us about uh Kellners and uh some observing he was doing. He had mentioned NGC 752, and uh that's one of my favorite uh open clusters. Have you ever looked at that one, Shane?
1: Uh, I'm just looking it up right now. Um, where, Oh, okay. By kind of, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. By triangulum. Yeah. 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 So, I don't know if I have, um, yeah, I'm not sure.
0: So NG 752, this was, uh, one of those, uh, well, it was, I think it was discovered by a few different people, but, but the first one to properly catalog it was Carolyn Herschel, uh, who was observing with her brother, uh, uh William Herschel. And, uh, as they were working on, um, their observations in the uh, 1800s, and she was just using like uh, what we would consider—I think it was like a four or five-inch reflector or something like that—a small-ish telescope, and uh, and she picked it up. But you can actually see NGC 752 with your unaided eye. So if you if you think about a Triangulum, you have the pointed part of the triangle, and um, just a few degrees above the uh, the end point. Is, uh, is M33 or Messier 33, which is a galaxy. Um, and then NGC 752, this big open cluster, is off of the other side. So if you use the two stars at, uh, I guess, the, the wide part of the triangle as a pointer uh, north, uh, you go up about three of those and you'll see sort of a hazy spot if you're at a dark site or if you just have a pair of binoculars, it's a beautiful binocular uh, cluster, just looks fantastic. Um, personally, I think that was discovered originally by, uh, G.B. Hodierna probably around, uh, I think like in the 1620s or 1630s or something like that. He, he was probably the first person to, to write about it. Um, but his position, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't amazing, but he definitely wrote about something he's been, I think, wrongly attributed with finding Messier 33, which I think is, is unlikely. Um, I think he was probably looking at that because in those days with those early telescopes, they were uh, looking at the sky and seeing what they could see with their unaided eye. That was kind of fuzzy and definitely in that general region. NGC 752 is uh, pretty apparent even with your unaided eye, and they would find fuzzy things and then point telescopes at them. That's likely uh, the first observation. But anyway, carrying on. Yep. Had a had an email from uh, from Larry. I didn't know if you you wanted to read this one from August twenty seventh.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, dear Christian, Chain, hope the rain and smoke is cleared, and you both have been able to do some observing. Uh, the weather here has been horrible—almost two weeks straight of rain. Uh, the skies finally cleared up a little the last few days, but still having to dodge clouds. Um, but after the rain, cloudy days uh, sorry, but after the rainy, cloudy days uh, we have been having, uh, even sucker holes look good right now. I can certainly relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you may remember, but a, a couple of months ago, I won an auction for a Vixen 80 millimeter F5. Uh, I got it hoping to use it as a wide field scope for clusters and asterisms. Uh, the scope seemed fine at first, but when I, when I got a 32 millimeter eyepiece and took a look at Arcturus through it, I noticed that the view was not star-like, but had a distinct cross-like appearance. Uh, This really surprised me as I hadn't noticed anything like this before with any of my other eyepieces, and I thought something must have happened to the scope. Um, After posting about this on Cloudy Nights, some of the posters suggested that since the cross-like patterns uh, were most prominent at low magnifications and much less prominent at high magnifications, uh, the problem was not with the optics, but an astigmatism in my eyes. Uh, Sure enough, the next time I went out and checked the aberration, uh, it moved with me uh, and was different in my right eye and left eye. So I'm guessing uh, that I have a minor astigmatism. Uh, I've never noticed this in my other telescopes, but I guess that was due to the smaller exit pupil in the uh, longer focal length scopes, either uh, F11 or F15. Um, I know both of you have some experience with astigmatism and observing, especially Chris. So I was wondering if you could pass along a little advice about how to deal with the issue. Um, I tried using uh, my regular glasses when looking through the eyepiece, but they didn't help. Uh, what else can I do? Are there other options other than getting new glasses? So
0: yeah, over, yeah, over to I, you. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I really, really love this email from Lair. I really appreciate you sending this to me. And I've uh, been, been eager to, uh, to get onto it because, yes, I have uh, tons of astigmatism. Um, there's, there's a few different things uh, you can try doing. So, one is that sometimes the telescopes, especially the ADF5s, can have a little bit. And so, you're adding astigmatism to already uh, astigmatic optics. And so, um, one of the things to do is to pop off the lens hood and make sure that the retaining ring on the lens cell isn't overly tight on these 80 millimeter F5s. And you can find instructions on how to do that on cloudy nights or just by Googling it. Um, it's There's even some great videos on YouTube um, for doing that. If if you Google it around, you, you can see how to remove that, that pressure. And that way you're not compounding your astigmatism um, with, with maybe a little bit of astigmatism that is in the optics. Um, the other thing to do is, um, well, there's, there's, uh, there, there's eye fatigue that we all suffer from. So make sure like, if you're working on a computer during the day, um, that, that you're cognizant or, or you keep that brightness down, you make sure that your color settings and the tones are pretty good. Um, just make sure that you're not straining your eyes, uh, as much as possible, like take care of them. If you're going outside, make sure you're wearing your sunglasses, um, and that kind of thing, because that definitely can make a difference. Like if I'm tired or my eyes are, have been strained all day, um, it will be much worse, um, than if I'm taking better care of my eyes. And if, if I'm not uh, staring at screens, uh, as much or, or if I am controlling, uh, the brightness, um, you can get up and make sure that you're looking out, uh, like a window or something. If you're working in an office, like I do, um, you know, a few times an hour, like get up and make sure you're looking at something more than about 30 or 40 feet away, Um, for about three or four minutes, uh, several times an hour, because that will actually cause your eye uh, to relax. Um, In the past, I've used, so if I don't wear my glasses and I'm using low power, the view is just terrible. Like I absolutely have to wear my glasses if I'm using uh, eyepieces that give an exit people, anything larger than about a four, four and a half millimeters. Um, So that means basically I just wear them all the time, even at high power, I notice a difference um, so pretty much all the time I wear my glasses observing in the past, I've had dedicated observing glasses, um, which I do find a bit of a pain. Um, but I, yeah, I, I've done that in the past. I may do it in the future, but it is, uh, an additional cost or, or expense and what you can do, if you're looking to go down that road. Um, and I have done this, is you can either buy a pair of what are called flippers diopter, diopter flippers, and uh these are not for swimming you you they're like a they're basically like a little set of what the eye doctor uses in that machine when they're kind of saying does this view look better or does that view look better and uh you can buy a few sets of these for not a whole lot of money and you hold them up in front of your regular glasses when you're out at night and you can actually see if having a custom-made pair of glasses uh would work for you without uh without that added expense um some people have found that, that using the teleview dioptrics uh, works pretty good, which is a device which can go on the teleview eyepieces um, that can help with astigmatism. For those of us that have it, you have to make sure it sort of matches your uh, prescription or whatever. And it's, and it's not uh, inexpensive. And then I guess the last thing is, and, and I certainly noticed this and uh, it's something that, that I just deal with. And uh is is just kind of relax and get used to it. So typically, if I'm using very very low power anyway, I'm not necessarily looking at like a planet or stars. I'm just finding a planet. If if I'm going to observe a planet, I'm not going to observe it at super low power unless it's like in a big star field or something. And then it, it doesn't really matter if it's not super sharp. And uh, if I'm looking at a at a star field under under really low power, I'm kind of looking at the larger. Field itself. And I find it's it's not too bad. And I can kind of ignore it depending on um, what I'm looking at. So if I'm looking at something like the Andromeda Galaxy, like I was the other night, um, I'm really focused on sort of the gauzy nature of the galaxy and maybe the star clouds in in the galaxy than I am on on maybe some of the field stars, whatever. And they're all pretty faint in that area anyway. But yeah, if if you take your, if I take my 80 millimeter F5 and I point out a bright star or a planet, Hundred percent. I'll, I'll see the same things you, you've described exactly, but uh, but typically that's not what I'm observing uh, with it. Um, I'm I'm not sure, Shane. Do you have anything to add to that?
1: Uh, the only other thing I'll add is um, if you have progressive lenses in your glasses, um, those can cause issues too. So um, I recently got my first set of progressives because as I age, uh, reading things close was becoming an issue. Um, and I don't like them for astronomy. So what I usually do is, um, like my prescription hasn't changed. So I just grab my old pair of glasses that aren't progressives and, uh, they just seem to work a lot better. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, so there you go. I mean, that, that's a few, uh, a few different options. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Something like a progressive is is going to be a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge there. But, uh, I think in general, yeah, just trying to ignore it, um, for the most part. And if, if it really does bother you, you can get a pair of dedicated, uh, observing glasses. I think that's, that's a good
1: option. Yep. For sure.
0: Okay. Um, we could talk a little bit about, um, maybe the border skies and, and light pollution a little bit Shane, if we want.
1: Yeah, yeah. Why not? Um, it was a it was an interesting email. I'm um, just pulling up. Uh, give me a second here. Yeah, okay. That's good. Go ahead. No, I was just trying to. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'll go ahead. I'll let you kick it off here. All
0: right. So uh, we had an email about uh, light pollution from uh, from a listener, and they said that. Um, they enjoyed our episode on lake pollution and, um, you know, they had thanked us for that. And, uh, they, they were asking us about, uh, the Bortle skies. I think is what it comes down. To. And they said that they had recently driven an hour to a Bortle three sky, um, and discovered that it was much worse than their Bortle four sky. And, uh, they said that there didn't see any much reference to, uh, to this in-the-light pollution maps, and that the Bortle 3 sky had light surrounding it, meaning the entire sky was glowing more than at their location, which is uh, Bortle 4, um, where the light comes only from from one side. So when and you and I were sort of ta- talking a little bit informally about, about this business of, uh, of the Bortle scale, uh, Shane, and Maybe I'll, I'll just recap the Bortle scale and then, then come to you for your impressions. But the Bortle scale was, I think it was created by John Bortle and, and it was uh, published in a Sky and Telescope article. And people can look it up. Um, but basically it's a scale. I think it goes from like one to seven or eight um, with uh, one being the best and any being the worst. And uh, where, where I am here right now, this is uh, a good solid Bortle four. And at a good solid portal 4 that means you can start to see uh, some pretty good detail in the Milky Way. But you're still seeing some local lights and you're still seeing some pretty good light domes in the distance. Uh, From the city in my backyard, it's sort of worst case scenario possible just about. Um, But I can see sort of a little bit of Milky Way, maybe way up overhead. um, And I can see probably a few hundred stars. So. It's probably something more like a Bortle six, um, maybe maybe on on the best night. So, so with that, Shane, maybe I'll just uh, kind of ask for your impressions on on the Bortle scale and um, and the light pollution maps and finding dark sites.
1: Yeah, you know, to be honest, Chris, I I don't use the Bortle scale at all. Um, I don't. I just I don't know. I, I I've never found uh, the desire to to really rate my you know my skies by Bortle. Um typically what I'll do is so there is the dark sky finder uh you know it's an app it's a website and um it tries to re- I believe it tries to reflect the bortle scale um of light pollution and impacts and all of that kind of stuff um so that that can be like a good resource if you are searching for a dark site to kind of help you know get you into the general area but but really, you just have to look at the night sky and assess it yourself. And the way I like to do it is just um, uh, limiting visual magnitude. You know, what is the faintest stuff I can see with my eye? You know, can I, can I see the Andromeda galaxy at this time of the year? Um, how much of the Milky Way is visible? Is it visible? Um, you know, that, that type of stuff, uh, is important to me. And, and like, you know, you, you, uh, told me your site is probably about a, like a six and a half visual magnitude, limiting visual magnitude, which tells me how dark it is. Right.
0: Yeah. Maybe directly overhead. Yeah. But probably towards, you know, most of the sky, it's like six. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so that tells me exactly, you know, what I need to know. And, and I think what maybe makes the Bordel, uh, scale challenging is, So there's like, there's a lot of local variables that can negatively impact the night sky, whether it's uh, like you and I were talking before the podcast. um, There's a site near where you and I live uh, that a lot of uh, astronomers go. It's the local club site. Um, And one of the kind of, you know, I guess, annoying things about there, like it's a somewhat dark site. It's, you know, close to the city, so it's not super dark. But there's a highway right beside it that has a fair amount of traffic. So you have headlights, you know, that will spoil your views, but really don't necessarily factor into the Bortle rating. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have just one, you know, poorly placed streetlight, it can even really impact you far more negatively than what the Bortle scale is telling you the sky is there. So, so you really just have to assess it for yourself and, and see what it looks like, in, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that the portal the like I find it, it it's sort of like a funny thing because I feel like the portal scale is a little bit more complicated and it is um, it is sort of an evaluative thing um, where I think when when it was created, um, he was trying to uh, give you a way to um, assess a site and then place a rating on it. And then that would give you the comparison to other sites. Mm-hmm. But I think the way that people are actually using it um, on the light pollution maps is they see that the area is a yellow zone or a green zone or an orange zone, which are going to be typically your better zones near a city. And then um, they're kind of just sort of pegging it on the map, and then and then you know go, going to that location. Versus I think the intent of the, of the boral rating is that you would go to the site and then do the rating there. And then that would actually give you, um, the level of the level of sky. So I, I think that in the light pollution maps, it's just giving you a very general, uh, interpretation. So for example, where we are here or, or at my site where I am now is, um, like, I think it's like a solid boral 4 ish, like according to the rating. Um, but our frequent correspondent, Phil, also observes under a portal for a sky. But from his site, he says he never sees the Milky Way. I, I, I think that's what he said. I, I don't speak for him, but I think that he mentioned to me that, that he's never seen the Milky Way from there versus here, on any night that's going to be good enough to observe at all. Um, we're going to see the Milky Way, and we'll actually see quite a bit of detail in the Milky Way itself, because um, we've got no local lights. There's no lights here for um, you know, at least 100 or 150 meters in, in any direction. And any neighbor lights uh, that do exist uh, for whatever reason, fortunately, um, the way that the neighbors have mounted their lights all coincidentally um, point really far away in the exact opposite direction of where the observing site is here. So any local lights are are completely 100% shielded. We can't see them at all. And, uh, and there's no street lights. So so from here in this portal 4 site, um, you really get everything that you can see at a Bortle 4 site versus like the club site, which is portal 4, is in a little town as well, but that town has streetlights right there. It has people with yard lights right there that point right at the site, and it's got a highway within, uh, well, less than 100 meters that goes right by with people driving by with uh, their high beams on, so you're constantly flashed. So here uh, on my road the other night, we were for two or three hours, We never had a car go by. There's cars that go by um, about four kilometers away and we can see their lights and they seem crazy bright um, from here. But Mm -hmm. considering uh, it's four kilometers away, that gives you an indication of how dark it is here that the lights that are four kilometers away are, oh, it just seems terrible when they, when they turn a corner um, really far away. So we'll get that three or four times throughout the night. Um, But but that's that, that's as bad as it gets here. Um, so that's kind of the way that I interpret the border scale. It's meant to be used to go to a site and to do an evaluation uh, and all the uh, light pollution maps are doing it as, providing it as a, as a general guide. But for sure, you can land out at a site that says it's quite a bit better than, than your other site and uh, and you're right under a, a big street light or something like that, you know, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and conversely, you know, sometimes you can find, you know, sort of unexpected gems where you, you look at the dark sky finder and you, you know, you might be in a a zone that indicates there would be a significant amount of light pollution, but sometimes there can be natural, um, you know, shelters or sort of blockages, uh, that, that keep the light away from, you know, a, a particular site. So occasionally you, you can kind of get lucky that way. Like, um, in one of the, uh, first homes that my wife and I bought, um, the, uh, the yard was, um, almost like a natural observatory. There was probably about 30, uh, very mature trees all the way around the yard, which kept a lot of the local light pollution out. And, you know, inside my yard, it was actually not bad considering it was an urban location. So, um, you know, again, the value of just evaluating, uh, this, the site, um, and using the dark sky, uh, apps and, and portal ratings as a bit of, uh, a, a guide, but not, um, you know, not, uh, a, a, a guaranteed indication of the quality of the sky.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's a pretty, pretty good way to put it. So if somebody's going to look for a dark sky site, uh, maybe how would they go about doing that shame? What would be some, some good uh, sort of starting out parameters?
1: Um, well, if you have a local astronomy club, uh, connect with them, um, they probably have uh, either, they either probably own some land or have agreements with uh, land owners to use the, uh, you know, some dark sky observing places. So check with them. Um, If you don't have a a local club or you just want to go it alone, uh, darksitefinder.com is uh, I think a commonly used one. And I think this is it's a worldwide, yeah, yeah. It's worldwide. Yep. So no matter where you live, um, you can check this out, and and what it does is I think it uses like Google Maps, and then does a, a light pollution overlay, um, and you, you know it really helps you to to locate some areas that you know would be a potentially good observing site. Um, the uh, the dark sky or sorry dark site finder I think also has uh, like user submitted pins of where people observe. Um, so, you know, it also gives you an indication of, you know, maybe a parking lot or someplace where you can safely get out of, uh, harm's way and, and, uh, you know, pull a telescope out and do some observing.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good place to start. And the, the other thing is to have, uh, like a few different sites, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's kind of what we have. We have a few sites that, that we go to and, uh, you don't really have uh, sort of like an exclusive site and, uh, yeah, depending on on the time of year and the weather and what we're looking for and what we're looking at. Um, we might go to one of, uh, you know, really we have like about three or four different sites that that we use on sort of, uh, each, each of them kind of like an infrequent basis, you know, so that that's kind of how, how we do it, but, uh, certainly, uh, yeah, getting in touch with your local club, I think is, is a great, uh, a great direction to go in. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, do you have anything else to uh, add Shane?
1: No, that's everything, Chris. All
0: right. Well, uh, thank you. And thanks everybody uh, for listening.
1: Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.